welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. If you've listened to the show for a while, you know that JF and I are making our way slowly through the 22 major arcana of the tarot. So far, we have released episodes on The Fool, The Empress, The Moon, The Tower, and The Wheel of Fortune. This week, we add Arcanum 17, The Star. There is no particular logic to our choice of this card. It just felt right which is the same reason we chose to do those other cards when we did them. There are some drawbacks to this approach, not least that we're putting off all the boring cards to later, so get ready for a whole lot of justice, temperance, and strength content in 2027, or whenever it is we finish up this series. Just kidding. No offense, Major Arcana of the Tarot. I love you all equally. I suppose if you're not interested in the tarot, you might be greeting the appearance of each new episode in the series with a pained sigh. Sorry about that. We have an eclectic listenership, and not everyone is here for the occult content. But even if you think this kind of stuff isn't for you, I encourage you to give this episode a try. We get into philosophical matters that are familiar to regular listeners, while also breaking some new ground. For one thing, we return to the abyss that is, the notion of a vast metaphysical gulf that lies between the world of forms and discursible meanings, on the one hand, and the realm of the formless and unspeakable, on the other. And yet this notion, familiar from our previous discussions of Alistair Crowley's custom Kabbalah, takes on new significance as we bounce Crowley's understanding of the star off of the traditional and canonic meanings ascribed to this card. Hope, guidance, nourishment and, for some reason, the spiral. From such collisions emerge new meanings and new ideas. Indeed, the tarot models a new technique of thought, one based on the aleatory deployment of 22, or 78, symbols in combinatorial arrays. But actually, that isn't a new way of thinking at all, just one we moderns tend to forget about. But never fear, fellow moderns, we got you covered. Here, J.F. and I adopt the tarot's method, each of us slapping down one card on the table and then another, looking out for new sense being made in their juxtapositions, working our way towards some idea that will be more than the sum of its parts. That's the dream, anyway. And that's the affordance the tarot promises for even the most skeptical and unesoteric of our listeners. Speaking of slapping things down on tables... We're hoisting a few brews in a week and a half. Illuminated Brewworks is making a Weird Studies Black IPA and releasing it at our first ever live show on May 23rd. JF will be joining us remotely from his secure, undisclosed location in Canada as Meredith and I hang out with you, the weirdos, at the Illuminated Brewworks World Headquarters in Chicago. The big homie Gabe Lubell, alias Jabwams, will be improvising live electronic music for your amusement when the doors open at 7pm 
and later you'll get to hear an animated conversation on the topic of beer and related substances. You can buy tickets now at Eventbrite. Look for the link in the show notes to this episode. I really hope to see some of you there. We're such a part of one another's lives now. It seems strange we haven't met already. This is quite a week for announcements. Sorry, just stay with me a little longer before we get to the meat and potatoes. You all know J.F.'s baby bro, Pierre-Yves, the man who imagineers the vibe here on Weird Studies with his windswept and poignant music. Well, Pierre-Yves Martel is releasing Weird Studies, music from the podcast, Volume 2, on Friday, May 13th. Like, this week. If you want a taste, stay tuned. The first and third cues in this episode are tracks from the new album. The place to listen to and purchase the album is Pierre Eve's Bandcamp page. Just Google Weird Studies Bandcamp to find it. Okay, now we can get on to the meat and potatoes. Onwards! So we're doing another tarot episode. Yes, we are. Working our way through the Major Arcana. And this one, actually, we had a bit of a discussion as to what to do next. And I agree that this one really, really works because it, it, it really draws on ideas we discussed in the previous tarot episode. The star. It's weird that we didn't do them in order, don't you think? Don't you think it's weird? <laughs> it seems increasingly weird to me now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because actually the problem with doing them in this intuitive, out-of-order way is that there are a lot of aspects of how the cards progress one to the next Yeah, that we're really not talking a lot about. And talk about it a little bit, but if we were doing it in sequence, it would be much easier, for example, to think about the whole fool's journey thing and think about each card is a step that the fool takes. But there are lots of people who do that really, really well. And maybe what we're doing is just something else because it's too late to go back well we could start at the beginning with the magician now having done the fool and just go in sequence except of course skipping over the cards we've already done but that would that feels like half measures it it, seems like a weak yeah like a loss of nerve is what that sounds like i think we need to commit to our randomness yeah we need to commit to and and look at each card the interesting thing is that the cards now are showing up in a sequence of ideas that isn't the tarot, but the show itself, which is interesting because then we're seeing That's a things, good point. you know, there's a, there's a secret order. Plus, I mean, it's just in the nature that you, you never draw the cards in order. Um, you always have to jam True. them together. So there's something to it. I like, you know, it's weird, but I like the way we're doing it. But in this case, I'm glad that we're following up the tower with the star, you know, for all kinds of reasons. So not that yeah. the tower was the last tarot episode we did. The That's last right. tarot episode we did was <laughs> Wheel of Fortune. That's true. But but there's a connection uh, there too. But there's yeah. also a connection with that. I mean, let's be real. There's a connection between every card and every other card of the 22 major arcana of the tarot. Yeah. But I don't know. It feels right. I mean, we were talking about it in the production discord and you and Meredith were both like, star is my favorite card. And I thought it would be a good idea to do it because actually for the rather practical reason, I was looking at 
Meditations on the Tarot by our known friend. Yeah. And I don't want to just talk about that text today because the star is a card that has elicited a lot of interesting thoughts from all kinds of commentators. And also, I should say at the front end, I actually find this chapter of Meditations on the Tarot a little less compelling than some of the others we've read. But no, it's neither here nor there. We can get into that. But mostly, I just sort of felt like, well, the other choice was the High Priestess. And to talk about the High Priestess, we really do need to do it in order with the magician, because he looks at the magician and the High Priestess as being the sort of complementary sides of a dualism. Yeah. And that's also how he conceives of the tower and the star, yeah. which are next to one another in the sequence. The, the tower is number 16 and the star is number 17. And in this particular case, he thinks about the tower as if those of you who have listened to our tower episode will remember that we thematized this central duality of building versus growing. And the tower is, of course, the emblem of building as a human capacity and potentiality. And the star is all about growing. And we'll get to that. Yeah. But uh, I decided for practical reasons, it would make sense for us to visit the other half of the duality begun by our conversation about the tower. But if I'm being real, the star is not my favorite card. You and Meredith both love this card. I do not. And I'm going to kick things off by reading something. This is from Alejandro Hodorowsky's The Way of Tarot, which is a marvelous book. Although it's quirky, it's got its limitations, like all books do. There's an awful lot of tarot wisdom between the covers of this book. So Hodo actually has a substantial agreement with our known friend, author of Meditations on the Tarot, or for that matter, agreement with Crowley in a weird way, actually find a lot of the same basic meanings for this card recur from one text to another. Spirals always seem to come up, despite the fact that there are no spirals on the Marseille yeah. uh, star card. The idea of hope always comes up. The idea that the two vessels that the woman pictured in the star card is holding, the two flows of water from those two vessels represent two different fundamental currents of life or currents of existence, currents of the cosmos. It's actually remarkable how consistent a lot of the meanings and attributions are across texts. But Hodo has one wrinkle that I like, which is he brings in what the star is if you are feeling negatively about it, or if it comes up in a reading and it doesn't seem to be a good star, maybe it's a, a star that bodes ill. Hodo writes, this is on page 230, if you have the book, if we wanted to view her action negatively, we could say that the star is wasteful or is demanding instead of giving. She is sometimes represented as squandering her energy on the past, haunted by the unresolved neuroses of the inner child. This is when a perpetually unsatisfied vampire-like being who lives in a permanent state of feeling unloved, invaded, or abandoned, one who never thinks of giving, will continuously demand constant sexual and emotional energy. The star then turns into a bottomless pit, or in contrast, becomes possessed by an excessive, undiscerning passion. She can metamorphose into someone who is immodest and shameless, a toxic being who pollutes rivers and poisons the spiritual or material lives of those close to her. Mm. And I found that interesting 
when he says the star turns into a bottomless pit, I actually thought about what happens to a black hole, what happens to a star when it right. turns into a black hole, when it kind of turns inside out. Implodes, yeah. It implodes, it reverses into something that is the absolute opposite of all of the positive energies that this card commonly evokes. I mean, this card has got to be one of the most popular of cards, and I always associate it with the Joni Mitchell song, Ladies of the Canyon. Mm-hmm. this is the ladies of the canyon card it's full of good vibes man good vibes and yet why is it that this card either says nothing to me when i get it in readings it always feels just sort of like i don't know what to make of it it never adds anything i have it in my blind spot and when it does convey something to me sometimes it's this faintly negative feeling right like Exactly what Hodo said of a vampire-like, perennially unsatisfied being who lives in a permanent state of feeling unloved, invaded, or abandoned, like a needy and toxic person or presence. I love what you're bringing in. Well, first, I want to say that our known friend does address the negative aspect of the star and his idea of the closed circle, opposing that to the spiral. Mm. He associates the star card with the element of water. So water is the element that's necessary for growth as opposed to building. You build a tower brick by brick. A tower is a digital construct made of discrete bricks, whereas a tree tree grows through the multiplication and division of its own cellular structure in this weird kind of um, organic way, right? Growing and building are two fundamentally different forms of evolution, let's say. But he says that the key difference is that whereas the tower is dry and associated with the element of fire, you you have to cook your bricks, you have to build your tower one brick at a time, the tree is filled with sap. And God will send a blast of lightning to burn it down. But but that's because the element of the tower was already the lightning, right? As you pointed out, Jodorowsky, he ambiguates where the lightning is coming from. Is it coming from the tower or to the the tower? Or inside the tower. Is it exploding from the inside out or is it being attacked from the outside? Yeah. The tower was already fire, right? Even before the disaster. Good good point. Yeah. And the tree, however, is filled with sap. And sap is, of course, a manifestation of the element of water. And water, for our known friend, symbolizes the idea of evolution transformation. But then he says there are two types of water, which is why the woman has two urns, the upper waters and the lower waters. And here he makes a reference to the second day of creation in Genesis, where God separates the waters above from the waters below the firmament. So for the ancients, for the ancient Hebrews, when they looked up, they saw the sky as a kind of dome above which was this watery substance in which the stars floated, right? And this was a popular idea in the ancient world. This is the kind of liquid, a kind of watery, water-like substance to space. And in fact, as I've pointed out, there's an aesthetic truth to this when you look at video of astronauts in space who look like they're floating underwater. It's just strangely apropos, you know, it kind of works. So so there are these, these two forms of water 
And the lower well, the water of this world is actually, if it didn't have the upper waters, would be a fully negative vampiric cesspool of poisons and stuff. Because it's just constant changing without any transformation. It's change without change. The situation down here below in the lower waters is always churning and changing, but there's never a qualitative shift. Unless you bring in the upper water, the water of the stars, which represents, for our known friend, represents hope. And hope is the telos or final cause that gives a point to all this sublunary change. And for him, the idea of evolution, the modern idea of evolution, only makes sense once you incorporate some kind of sense of a final cause in it. So that it's not just species fluctuating and shifting and mixing and separating for no reason. It's all moving towards some kind of cosmic evolution, which is represented by the star, which since the dawn times has always been a symbol of hope because the star is the, the fixity by which you set your path and know your way. The star tells you well, where you well, are. At least, well, at least Polaris represents right. fixity. All the other ones are wheeling around. Well, they're wheeling. The sky. Oh yeah. But they're wheeling around according to fixed trajectories. That was the whole point of ancient astronomy is to find, yeah. Yeah. To, to fix that the stars were unchanging, moving along as Owen Barfield puts it, perfect circles at constant speed. That was the, mm, that was right. the reality of the, of the supernal world outside of the lunar sphere. So my whole point with this is that I think that our known friend does touch on the negative aspect of the star. And certainly Hodorowsky really brings that out. And we have to think about stars in that ambiguous way. And I'm just being really kind of basic here. The term disaster comes from bad star. That's what it means in Latin, yes. bad star. Yeah. And so the idea that you have a bad star rising on the horizon, bringing with it a kind of um, aura of, of doom uh, is as ancient as the idea that the star will guide your path, will guide your way. Like the stars have always been ambiguous. You know, it's like that wonderful Pink Floyd song, a Sid Barrett song, um, Astronomy Domine. Oh yeah. You know, uh, was it uh, Neptune, Titan, stars can frighten. I love that. <laughs>
That's an interesting thought, like what a bad star is, as opposed to a good star. Yeah, I'm glad that we're landing on the idea of a certain ambivalence. I mean, and indeed, every card in the tarot is ambivalent, because if you take seriously the idea that each of the 22 arcana, or for that matter, all 78 cards in the deck, reflect permanent energies in the universe, permanent patterns, permanent forms and movements that make the cosmos what it is. If you take that seriously, then each one is going to have its positive and negative aspect. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out why this card conveys so little to me. Well, what does that mean? It conveys little to you. I'm staring at it right now, and I feel nothing. You know, in a purely aesthetic sense, the star for me evokes Christmas, uh, or that time of year, the Yuletide time of year, you know? Yule carries with it a very particular concept of night. Night as a place filled with glittering lights, right? That's the idea of the Christmas night is a night filled with light, but not the light of the sun. This kind of, uh, right. this light that is at home in the dark. You see this in representations of the, the nativity, um, often the sky in a depiction of you know, Christ's birth will always be that deep, deep blue of a, maybe a night with a full moon. But of course, there's never a moon in these depictions. There's always the one star that's guiding the, the wise men to the, to the, um, Ma to the manger, the manger. God damn it. <laughs> and, um, I think that's basically what I love about this card is this intimation of this night filled with starlight. I just really love that image of this woman in this desolate place where just a few sprigs of new life are growing in the background. She's pouring water into a pool. Maybe her water is forming the pool. Maybe she's pouring water onto dry ground. That's been said before about this card. And above her, this kind of like majestic, almost kind of eldritch, almost monstrous spectacle of lights, none of which are the sun or the moon, the lights we really rely on to stabilize our sense of reality, but rather these strange other lights out there, each of which might intimate another world, each of which might be the sun, the setting sun of some other planet, as uh, Wilco put it. I love the aesthetics of this card. Mm. I agree with you that whenever it shows up in a reading, I'm almost always confused as to what it signifies. Yeah. I'm never quite clear. It seems either too vague in what it might signify, because a star is so far away. I, I don't know what a star is. Okay, I have to aim for this. It has a, it's giving me a kind of a, a reference point or something to aim towards, a telos. It gives me the box in which I put a telos, but not the telos. It never gives me what I put in the box. <laughs> you know? It's like, it's yeah. like a, it's, it feels like an empty vessel when, yeah. I, when I get it in readings. I, I, I sympathize with that feeling. Yeah. Why don't we take a minute actually to talk about some alternate ways that the star card appears? That is to say, other decks, not just the Marseille deck. Mm. I have sitting before me the star card from the Thoth deck. Oh, yeah. It's a great card. It's gorgeous. It's, it's one of the prettiest cards in the deck. And the figure, which in the Marseille deck is, of course, just a woman. There's no canonic attribution of what woman that is. In the Thoth deck, Crowley nails it down. He says, this is Nuit. Yeah. I don't know if that's how you pronounce that particular goddess's name. 
I don't know either. It seems to be well, it's I think Nuit was an Egyptian goddess. Mm -hmm. But also it's the French word for night. Nuit is yeah. the French word for night. So I always read it as nuit, but it's probably Nuit. Yeah. That seems to make sense. You know, let's just say it à la française, because everything sounds pretty. Sometimes when he you puts say... an H at the end. Nuith.Ometimes he puts an H at the end, TH. So that doesn't really like specific to me. specifically to thwart people who want to say nuit. Yeah, um, right, exactly. <laughs> just like don't get any ideas. But in any event, in his Thelemic philosophy, Crowley believes that Nuit is but an aspect of the goddess Babylon. Yeah. And Babylon is the great patron goddess of Thelema, of Alistair Crowley's philosophical, spiritual, religious system, Thelema. And if we look at this card, see three stars, actually. They're all seven-pointed stars, and it's the seven-pointed star that is the, the symbol of Babylon. Babylon is an interesting goddess. She is a figure of the Book of Revelations, where she appears as a kind of a dread monster, but the whole basis of Thelma is to understand Babylon as both monstrous and terrible and beautiful and the very entity of cosmic fulfillment. Yeah. The, she, and she, the, the fulfillment of the will. She's also all about love in Crowley's right. own savage kind of reinvention of that term. Um, yes. And I mean that in a good sense. So in her embodiment as knew it she's that's the loving aspect of babylon in a sense yeah his chapter on on the card ends with this kind of uh he's kind of putting words in new its mouth and expressing how unconditionally she loves the seeker who seeks her out right and i confess that i have not read the book of the law for a long time but i'm going to read you the lines that he does put in new slash babylon's mouth I give unimaginable joys on earth, certainty, not faith, while in life, upon death, peace unutterable, rest, ecstasy, nor do I demand aught in sacrifice. But to love me is better than all things. If under the night stars in the desert thou presently burnest mine incense before me, invoking me with a pure heart and the serpent flame therein, thou shalt come a little to lie in my bosom. For one kiss wilt thou then be willing to give all, but whoso gives one particle of dust shall lose all in that hour. Ye shall gather goods and store of women and spices. Ye shall wear rich jewels. Ye shall exceed the nations of the earth in splendor and pride, but always in the love of me, and so shall ye come to my joy. I charge you earnestly to come before me in a single robe and covered with a rich headdress. I love you. I yearn to you, pale or purple, veiled or voluptuous, I, who am all pleasure and purple, and drunkenness of the innermost sense, desire you. Put on the wings, and arouse the coiled splendor within you. Come unto me. At all my meetings with you shall the priestess say, and her eyes shall burn with desire as she stands bare and rejoicing in my secret temple, to me, to me calling forth the flame of the hearts of all in her love chant. Sing the rapturous love song unto me. Burn to me perfumes. Wear to me jewels. Drink to me, for I love you. I love you. 
I am the blue-lidded daughter of sunset. I am the naked brilliance of the voluptuous night sky. To me, to me, the manifestation of Newit is at an end. Wonderful. What do we make of that? So he yeah. seems to be combining or marrying the figure of the woman in the card with the star itself, so that they're one and the same. If the star is the, and we think about stars in a modern sense, we think of them as centers of gravity, centers of powerful gravitational fields that pull things towards them. In that sense, you can, you can see how mm. the star portrayed as a kind of feminine deity would imply attraction that we feel pulled and drawn towards it. And the star wants nothing so much as to envelop us in its own kind of bosom mm. in itself. You get this image of the powerful, loving, devouring goddess is so present in Crowley. Uh, it comes up again and again in his, in his work. Devouring is right. Yeah. Devi Actually, yeah. now that I think of it in this light, the negative and positive sides of the star are combined this devouring goddess, but it's like the ecstasy comes in allowing yourself to be devoured, to give yourself utterly to Babylon, to the goddess. Yeah. Reminds me of, uh, Leslie once told me she'd, she'd seen the science magazine somewhere and there was a picture in it of a snake eating a mouse, but she said that she couldn't help but see this look of absolute ecstasy on the mouse's face. Like the mouse wanted nothing so much but to be eaten by this snake, you know? Mm. Um, kind of a dark thought, but that sort of thing is helpful with Crowley because he does seem to be calling on us to allow some process to take place which will completely destroy us and yes. yet give us a new form, you know? It's yes, like, yeah, absolutely. And uh, his the goddess Babylon seems to really embody that that process. That's true. And perhaps that's why the card makes me feel uncomfortable. There's something about it. Some weird energy this card gives off mm -hmm. that is both delightful and seductive and sinister at the same time. And maybe Crowley is the only one who really makes that front and center to his interpretation of the card. Yeah. Um, see, I sort of feel like I'm... Um, I'm a reformed rationalist, you know, but I'm still a dwarf at heart. <laughs> we had this whole conversation before when we were doing a extra for the Patreon about the dwarf elf binary or dichotomy or dualism in fantasy, which I'm not going to get into here. But suffice it to say, my temperament is in a certain sense, mistrustful, self-protective and apt to use intellectual procedures the spirit of building in our known friend's sense of having, like, I have a method, I have a technique of putting one brick on top of the other until I have my tower. I'm comfortable with that. I know how to do that. I can use my busy calculating mind to do that. And as much as in recent years, I have been trying to cultivate the spirit of growth that our known friend says is the Arcanum of Arcanum 17. Yeah. My heart really belongs to that cold, inorganic spirit of manufacture and technique. And perhaps it is that part of me that refuses to give over to Babylon, that refuses to come unto her, 
to mingle my blood in the chalice and all of that. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, there is some part of me that's just like... Loss of control. Ew! Yeah. And, and, you know, we wouldn't be doing justice to the symbol of the star or of stars in the plural if we didn't make that a central piece of it. Like... For the ancients, the stars, as wonderful as they were in that they indicated to us the fixities by which we could make sense of this world, right? Mm -hmm. The stars were also the source of fate. Yes. There was a term, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, haimarmene? I don't know how to, haimarmene? It's uh, H-E-I-M-A-R-M-E-N-E, Greek term that I've read my whole life, but never heard anyone utter. Um, it doesn't my, come up in casual conversation no. that often. And I have, to be honest, I didn't, haven't read it my whole life. <laughs> like when I was six, I didn't know this word, but, um, <laughs> hymarmene, let's say that way. So okay. hymarmene means the tyranny of the stars, right? The succession of cause and effect. It means something like samsara in the Greek kind of register. And it, it was often used to refer to how the stars determine our fates. So in a sense, for the Gnostics, a lot of the Gnostic sects, the point of life was to break out of the prison of the stars. When certain Gnostics looked up at the night sky outside of Alexandria in Egypt, what they saw wasn't a beautiful display of the wonders of the universe or the wonders of creation, but rather the archons that ensure that we remain here in this prison. And the process of liberation involved literally ascending into the heavens and finding the right passwords or tricks to bypass each of those archons so that you could then mm. pop out at the other end into the bethos, into the, 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 the abyss of the true God. As my old Zen teacher might say, this is turning the cosmos into a cardboard game. Yes. <laughs> got to ascend the ladder. Now you got to know the password. It's like a fucking video game. Yeah. I guess your teacher had... The Theravadans in his sights when he said that? I'm not sure. I'm just guessing. No, actually, another sect of Mahayana Buddhist that had this whole really engineered, worked out plan. Right. The 12-point plan for enlightenment. The only problem is it would take countless lifetimes. But the idea is that if you just sort of grind your way, it's almost like grinding in a video game, like where you're just doing repetitive actions and eventually you can take on the big boss because you've leveled up enough. Right. But I remember him finding this whole way of thinking about things tedious and ultimately beside the point. But I'm sorry, I I didn't mean to distract you from where you were going. I think I just completely derailed your point. No, no, I think it's a great point to make because that might be a reproach. You'd level at some of those Gnostic texts. Sometimes you get the sense that simply in learning the truth, let's say contained in the text, you already graduated to the level of the, they were like three types of people that the most gifted, the most privileged folks were called the um, pneumatics, I think. And then you had the psychics and the hylics, the lower people who didn't have a chance. Simply in receiving this knowledge, you had the pass keys, you had the means of getting out. I don't Mm. think that that was actually how Gnosticism was practiced. It was probably the content of the texts were just part of a a larger mystical process or mystagogic process that involved initiation, obviously. Sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But you get that sense that it's a technical problem right? The stars are, mm. are an obstacle that we need to get past. We point, need hacks. Po- we yeah, need we hacks need, for the stars. Exactly. And point being though, the basic point is simply that the stars are deeply ambiguous. In weird literature, there's a phrase 
uh, strange stars, which you'll often read in old weird stories, when a writer wants to evoke a land that is simply not of this world. It still has stars, but the stars are not the stars we know. It's like going to the Southern Hemisphere and looking up and seeing a completely different sky. Yeah. There's something really disorienting, you know, regardless of how far distant, aloof, remote, and immaterial the stars are to us, we really rely on the patterning of the stars to know where we are, even, well, maybe less so today than ever. But it would be very strange to look up and see suddenly a constellation that's never appeared before. The implications of simply seeing right. something like that are so, so fundamentally monstrous. Imagine, yes. imagine, and nothing's changed in your life. You wake up in the morning, everything's fine. You have a day at the office. Things are a little weird. You're not quite sure. You just, you feel unsettled. And at night you walk out, I don't know, to have a smoke or something. And you look up and the stars are not the stars of this world. Yeah. And you're like, whoa. And you go to your spouse or a friend, you go, look up. They're like, do you recognize? And they're like, yeah, that's the, that's the way the stars have always been. It's just this really chilling mm. thing. Again, a call back to Mandy, where on, especially at the end, the last shot of the film, yeah. the camera kind of just lifts, it tilts up from the landscape to reveal these very strange stars in the sky, uh, implying that this story did not take place on Earth or any Earth we know. You know, that's interesting. That's almost a trope. Of like the unfamiliar stars. So like in Wizard of Earthsea, when Gad chases his shadow to the ends of the earth and beyond, like we realize we are in some, if I'm remembering the story right, we realize we've gone somewhere off the grid when he realizes that he no longer recognizes the stars. Yes, exactly. And I feel like I've encountered that a number of times in reading science fiction or fantasy. Oh, and fucking balloon. Well, it's a moon, but like I remember reading um, uh, Dahlgren. Dahlgren. Yeah. When there's a moment where people are just sort of milling around and the skies, which are almost always overcast, part for a second. And there's a new moon that no one has ever seen before. Right. It's just such a deliciously weird moment. Yes. I love it. Uh, I was rereading Lord of the Rings. I was reading it to my daughter. And on a few occasions, he refers to constellations. The constellations of Middle Earth, and the constellations aren't the constellations we know, because the Greeks weren't around yet. So they have different names for the constellations. But Tolkien always makes sure to put in a footnote to tell you what our modern name for this constellation oh. is, in order to reassure us that Middle Earth is still Earth. You know, because if the stars were completely different, the novel would, would switch into a weird register that I guess Tolkien didn't want it to go into. So Crowley has another interesting idea in his writing on the star. One thing, if you look at the Thoth deck card of the star, you see that the figure, the female figure of Newt, I suppose, is holding two vessels, just as in all of the standard appearances of the, the card. And she's emptying one out on the ground and the other she's emptying out over her own head. The one she's emptying over her head is this gold bowl. The one in her 
other hand, her left hand is a silver bowl. And what's interesting is that you see a spiral. A spiral is very strongly thematized in this card, and the spiral is also strongly thematized in our known friend's chapter on this card. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a place we can go next. It's what's up with the spirals? Why is everybody all interested in spirals in this card, despite the fact that there are no spirals in the Marseille version of this card? The spirals yep. have been added, certainly, by Crowley and Harris in this card. So the spirals on the Thought Deck card are interesting. They emanate from the seven-pointed star, the Star of Babylon, and the arms of the spirals are articulated almost the way like spider's legs are articulated yeah as segments of straight lines at angles to one another that form curves and one thing that crowley points out in his commentary is that when you look from the upper bowl or the upper vessel to the lower one you see a kind of calcification of the flow that the flow begins to look more and more rectilinear so that the bottom one, which is being poured out on the ground, is full of straight lines. Right. And hold on for a second. I want to get a good quote. Um, yeah. It will be seen that every form of energy in this picture is spiral. There are lots of spirals, actually, now that I'm looking. And at I'm going to jump over a couple of things where he's talking about the resonance of this card with the Aeon card, which is what Crowley turned the judgment card into. The card that's about his own particular theory of the Aeon of Horus, which is a super interesting theory. But I'm skipping over that. And he says, It is only in the lower cup that the forms of energy issuing forth show rectilinear characteristics. In this may be discovered the doctrine which asserts that blindness of humanity to all the beauty and wonder of the universe is due to this illusion of straightness. It is significant that Riemann, Bolyai, and Lobachevsky, mathematicians, seem to have been the mathematical prophets of the new revelation, for the Euclidean geometry depends upon the conception of straight lines, and it was only because the parallel postulate was found to be incapable of proof that mathematics began to conceive that the straight line had no true correspondence with reality. I don't know about mathematics because I'm a dummy when it comes to math, but I will say, I've heard it said by people who are like trackers in the wild, people who are like survivalists, so people like that dude in Survivor Man, uh, Les Stroud, who spent a lot of time in the wilderness, will say that their eyes will automatically pick out any straight line as something that's man-made. If you see a straight line, even if you don't know what it is, you know that's like somebody discarded a bathtub or some shit. Right. And... He points out in a footnote, the straight line is no more than the limit of any curve. For instance, it is an ellipse whose foci are an infinite distance apart. In fact, such use of the calculus is one certain way of ensuring straightness. An interesting thing I mentioned only because calculus also shows up perhaps somewhat incongruously in the chapter on this card in Meditations on the Tarot. No, but, Leibniz. but I rather like this idea of the spiral and the decay or the degeneration of the spiral into rectilinear shapes in the lower cup. In other words, into something more artificial, more man-made. Yeah. And that actually really resonates with a pretty basic aspect of this card. This is still Crowley Harris's card, which is that it is actually as closely related to the other card we thought about doing, the High Priestess card. 
the high priestess occupies, like if you are looking at the tarot attributions, you're mapping where the 22 cards of the tarot go in relation to the 22 pathways of the tree of life in Kabbalah. The pathway of the high priestess card marks the abyss, the boundary between the supernal realm above the abyss, the supernal triad of Kether, which is the supreme one, Bina, which is, I think, number two, and Chukma, which is number three. And these are, you got to realize the whole system of the Tree of Life is an emanationist one, where Kether is the ultimate, it's the unmanifest, it's beyond manifestation, but there's a sense in which things come into being as that kind of pure Godhead is refracted through these principles that appear a little bit lower down in the chain of creation. And so the top one, the crown, Sephirah, or Sephirah, I think Sephirah is the singular. Singular, um, yeah. Its purity is refracted through Bina and Shokma, but all of that is still prior to manifestation. This You can think of this as a kind of spiritual intelligence prior to things coming into manifestation such that we can perceive them. Into time, yeah. Yeah, yeah things yeah. tumbling into time and space. And the abyss is the barrier between that beyond manifestation part of existence and the manifestation part of existence. And the point that I'm making is, okay, the high priestess card occupies that space on the tree of life if we're going with the classic correspondences between the tarot and the tree of life. But in this card, the star in the Thoth tarot, it's sort of the same idea. You see a sea, an ocean, pictured beyond the figure of Nuit, and that's the Sea yeah. of Bina. Yeah, he makes that clear in the text, yeah. In other words, beyond manifestation, whereas the ground at her feet is manifestation. At least this is how I understand this aspect of the card. Hold on for a sec, I just lost my place like an asshole. What um, an asshole. What an asshole, indeed. Um, Crowley writes that the figure of Newit pours it, that is to say, the blood of the grail, the nectar, which is the mother of that blood, as he says. He says, Newit pours it upon the junction of land and water. This water is the water of the great sea of Bina. In the manifestation of Newit on a lower plane, she is a great mother. For the great sea is upon the shore of the fertile earth, as represented by the roses in the right-hand corner, very small. But between sea and land is the abyss, and this is hidden by the clouds, which whirl as the development of her hair. My hair, the trees of eternity, which is kind of a neat detail of the card. But the point is that the upper, as the flowing bounty of the upper card pours over her head, the flowing bounty of the lower vessel, the lower cup, as I say, becomes more rectilinear, more formed, more human. Yeah. And this is a kind of a neat little secret teaching of this card that tells us something about manifestation, about the nature of the entity represented. It's both like responsible for manifestation and yet also kind of beyond it. But although in, in this aspect, she is personified as opposed to how she appears in the 20th Arcanum, Aeon of the Thoth deck in which she is space itself. She is the boundary rather than some particular figure within the boundary. 
And that corresponds perfectly with meditations on the tarot and a number of traditional readings of the card, which sees this arcanum as a symbol of manifestation, of things coming into the world of discernible being. This is from Cyrlo's famous Dictionary of Symbols, which I, I enjoy looking things up in once in a while. Uh, the ultimate meaning of the symbol seems to be expressive intercommunication of the different worlds or the vitalization by the celestial luminaries of liquids contained in certain vessels and implying, furthermore, the transference of these celestial characteristics to the purely material elements of earth and water. For this reason, Oswald Wirth uh, concludes that this enigma represents the soul uniting spirit with matter. So to see mm. this, this image, uh, this card not just as a, as a kind of snapshot of some ideal, which is, would be, the I guess, the simplest way of conceiving the symbol of the star, but rather seeing this card as a little movie showing you how things come into manifestation. It's right. particularly clear in the Thoth deck. And, and again, there the link with the High Priestess is clear because the High Priestess is the bridge, right? She's the descent from the unmanifest into manifestation. Yep. And so the star, I don't know where the star is situated in the traditional associations between the Sephiroth and the, the paths of the Sephiroth and, and the, I don't know them offhand anyways, but the star can be seen as a kind of symbol of that coming into being. And of course that resonates with the sprigs in the background with new life sprouting. Yep. And it certainly aligns with what, our known friend is arguing in his book, which is that the star, as opposed to the tower, which symbolizes modeling, I, I, that's the word that I go to in my head, like construction, constructing something that if you lack wisdom, you'll end up thinking your model is the real thing. That's kind of the problem with the Tower of Babel, right? They're trying to rebuild the, the tree of life. They're trying to build a new tree outside of Eden in the wastelands. And so they build this tower, but they can only build it digitally because they're humans and they think in terms of slices, straight lines. Yeah. They can't think in terms of pure curves, pure durée. Mm -hmm. So they build the tower with bricks. They can't build it with cells that grow uh, kind of- uh, That are impelled with their own inner with life. With their own inner life, right. By that sap, that magical sap that gives growth to things. And so- the star is a symbol of growth. It's a symbol of something manifesting imminently out of the bosom of being itself, something arising of its own naturally, according to, to a path that is not a straight path, but rather a spiraling, a nonlinear path, right? That opens up. Mm -hmm. And then the, the symbol of the, of the spiral, which is super important. I love that our known friend quotes Zoroaster at one point. He says, Zoroaster said that God has the head of a hawk and the mind of a spiral. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. I love that God has the mind of a spiral. God thinks in a spiral, but a spiral is the absolute absence of straight lines. And so is, un is unavailable to us. The mind of God is not available to us in anything but an analogical form. And so hmm. the star becomes a symbol of this monstrous non-human process by which things come into being and with which we must come to terms. You know, for the class I'm doing on neuro learning, 
We're going to talk about Galileo and Copernicus and that whole moment where the stars became indicative of this monstrous other cosmos, right? This, this, that suddenly the stars, which, which had seemed to exist purely for us in a certain sense, as these perfect spheres, indicators of the perfect fixity of the eternal beyond this valley of tears we find ourselves in, suddenly the stars showed another face. They became just as material as the earth. And this revelation in Galileo's telescope, that for instance, Jupiter had moons and that stars were actually planets like earth with mountains and valleys, and they were not perfect crystal spheres. This kind of horrific revelation of a universe that is in a sense, non-human, that isn't just tailor-made for the human epistemic apparatus, but rather this strange place that we'll have to find our way through uh, using other means than just trusting in the appearances. Maybe that's one point where the, the good and the bad kind of aspects of the star meet. It's that there's great promise in coming to terms with the spiral as something that I cannot understand but must identify with in some sense, and the sense that there's something that in it that threatens to devour me, that threatens to consume me or transform me beyond any recognition. Yeah. You know, the spiral is a perennial figure of spiritual development because our known friend breaks it down pretty clearly. And this is the same idea that came up also in the Wheel of Fortune card. The idea that a, a flat circle, a closed circle, like a snake eating its tail, like the Ouroboros, is the world unredeemed, right? It is the world entirely below the abyss, the world of material, of stuff, of ideas that are limited by materiality. So in a purely material dispensation, as we've said on this show, like in a sense, nothing new can ever appear on the scene. There's nothing new under the sun. A so-called creative idea is really just the reshuffling and juxtaposition of elements that are already known and already exist, and whose rejuxtaposition will not bring anything new into the world. It will just be a new arrangement of known things. Nothing will be more than the sum of its parts, right? That's the flat circle where you always will end up returning to the exact same place that you start, no matter where you set off from. Yeah. And the spiral is what happens when you open one end. If you imagine making a cut in that circle and bending the one loose end out just a little bit, all of a sudden, that line can go on forever, going round and round and round in an ever-widening gyre exactly. or gyre. I'm not sure how to pronounce that word. And that becomes an image for spiritual development and indeed a consoling one for those who are on the spiritual path and find themselves going in circles, which is definitely what that feels like. If I'm on the spiritual path and making improvements to my life and being a better person and all the rest of it, then why do I keep making the same fucking mistakes over and over again? Or why do I keep feeling bummed about the same stuff? Why do the same personal issues keep biting me again and again? And the realization like, yeah, but it's not the same because each time you hit that point, that station on the circle, you can imagine a spiral that's going upwards, like a spring that's being stretched out. You're hitting the same coordinates on the map, but you're higher up the hill. That kind of metaphor can be quite 
uh, helpful, I think, in times when we feel that we're stuck and realizing that actually maybe we're not. And so that principle of hopefulness is also the one meaning of the star that seems to be pretty much indispensable. Everybody talks about this, that the star is a principle of hope. If we think about a pole star, an unmoving star, it's something that you can count on. You can put all your faith in it. Nothing is going to happen to move the pole star out of its position. You know, if you can see the pole star, you know where you are, you know where you can head towards. You may feel lost now, but the star by its very existence points to something beyond just your irremediable seeming fallenness and enmeshment in the material. There's a, a moment here where our known friend, um, we're going to keep doing that. Our known friend. We're never going to just I like it. Yeah, I like it. All right. Uh, our known I mean, I mean, his name appears in the show notes, I think. And so like anybody can find out who wrote the book. Right. He didn't want us to know the name or use the name. So, you know, right. He's talking about how this idea of the marriage of opposites, which is the process, the alchemical process by which we transcend this world of straight lines and ascend into the realm where the spiral becomes, if not thinkable, then at least open to mystical At least experience. something you can experience, yeah, even exactly. if you can't express that. Yeah. He says, so I'll just substitute spiral for marriage of opposites here. The spiral makes the light force radiate into the world, which renders the future not only acceptable, but also desirable which transforms the future into promise, and which is the antithesis of the thesis of the author of Ecclesiastes, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, who said, quote, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Famous line from Ecclesiastes 1.9. And then our known friend continues, The light force which emanates from the star, constituted through the marriage of contemplation with activity, and which is the antithesis of the thesis that there is nothing new under the sun, is hope. It proclaims to the world, quote, What has been is that which prepares what will be, and what has been done is that which prepares what will be done. There is only that which is new under the sun. Each day is a unique event and revelation which will never be repeated.
one thing I like about the Marseille deck in particular is it's a very rifty deck. A lot of rifts in it. It's funny, I don't actually use the Marseille deck much for divination, but I do appreciate it. And unlike any number of decks that are created, like, you know, vampire decks or whatever, <laughs> theme decks that where you're going for some kind of eldritch theme, there's lots of tarot decks that are dripping in weird imagery. I mean, the Thoth Tarot is actually an example of that. Uh, the Marseille deck isn't trying to be weird. It just is. Yeah. It's just, it has a lot of strange dreamlike imagery. And one of my favorite little images in the tarot is in this card. And it's the little bird. Yes. On the left-hand side of the card, about halfway up. So as you said earlier, the figure in the star is pouring her waters out on the ground, possibly watering parched land. That's one interpretation that comes up the idea that this is the ladies of the canyon thing a maternal figure of endless generosity and nourishment and you see a couple of spiky plants bushes springing up in the background i've read that one is an acacia the other one's a rose bush ah indeed okay yeah well i don't know which one is which but in the one that's larger there's this bird but it's like this spindly skeletal bird and the version that i'm looking at it's almost just like a. it could as easily be taken for an insect mm. it's a very reduced form an abstract bird and what do you make of it now one of the common interpretations of it is it's the ibis because of course everybody likes to find egyptian imagery in the tarot the old idea that the medieval tarot is a slightly altered version of the ancient book of thought you know yeah the, the true pictograms of the divine language but i see it I'm as not that i'm not yeah. that into egyptological interpretations to be real but i love that bird because it's a, such a weird looking bird and what's it doing there yeah. It's a rift it, with all of the explanation the standard explanations we've had of the star like hope and growth and life the spindly slightly sinister little black bird the only black figure on the card doesn't fit what is it what's it doing there well since it's black we might assume it's a crow mm. but my temptation would be to say oh it's just black because it's dark because it's night it's actually the dove because the dove is the animal as we saw in our wheel of fortune episode that comes to symbolize the sudden eruption of the eternal within time, of yeah. the acausal within the causal chains of sequential existence. And That's right. uh, so we might look at the bird as a nod to the dove from Genesis that brings the sprig to Noah, indicating new life. Hmm. Or if we're thinking more abstractly in terms of the mediation between above the abyss and below the abyss, that this is a watcher of the abyss or a guardian of the abyss. Yeah. In which case the crow would seem to be a fitting animal for that. I like mm. to think of it. I mean, it's nighttime. The stars are out. So it might be a nightingale. The nightingale certainly has a lot of symbolic meat to it. I'm not sure. What about if it's just some bird? Yeah, like some bird just crept into the picture. 
Just a bird. Perched there. Not any particular bird, not a a symbolically weighty bird, just a bird. Yeah. Just the What's rift. What's it doing there? It's open. God is giving us the bird through this image. You're flipping us the bird. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know, but I agree that it is a rift. I mean, in one sense, it's it goes well with the symbol of new life, right? The bird gets to feed on the tree that's growing thanks to the star woman's um, outpouring of nourishing sap into the earth. But in another sense, it almost feels like a spectator. Like, I agree. It feels like it shouldn't be there. Like, it just perched there and happened upon the scene and is looking at it just as we're looking at it. Yeah. 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 But seeing it from the other side, it's in the background looking towards us, maybe. Well, it's in profile. Yes, but it's so, in the so background it would of have, the image. Yeah. But it, it would have one eye on us. Perhaps. Well, that's how birds see, isn't it? They kind of see yeah, it in this really is. wide arc. Yeah. I like to not know what the bird's about. Yeah, me too. But next time I draw the card, I'll be, I'll make the bird the center of my interpretation. There's other things about this card that are a little weird too. Hodorowsky, his version of the Marseille is basically the Camois yeah. tarot with, with a few changes that he's made. He maintained that he was restoring the ancient tradition. Of course. Um, like you do. I mean, <laughs> it's the occult. You have to say <laughs> shit like that. Yeah. But he's pointing out a couple of things about the way the figure of the woman is rendered, that her left knee, the one that's touching the ground, is actually kind of weird and deformed. Mm. And he maintains it looks a little bit like a, a baby's buttocks, which I guess I can kind of see that. But there's that. And then her oversized navel. This is a right. This is somebody with an Audi. Yeah. I don't know what to make of those. I mean, there is something about the drawings of human figures in the Marseille tarot that always seems a little bit crude or like oh, medieval. Yeah. One thing we can comment is that we get to see those things because this figure is naked. And that's interesting as this is a point that I think Hodo makes that this is the first in a whole series of cards with naked bodies in it. But it's the first, like we get up to Arcanum 17, we get as far as number 17 before we see any unclothed figures. And that's the star. We find our first naked person. And then from there, the sun, we have the yeah. two naked Everybody's children, naked. Yeah. The naked bodies of the dead coming out of their graves in the judgment card. And then the naked woman in the world, the, card. the yeah. world card. Wow. I never, so, never realized that. Yeah. So can we do anything with that? I mean, Hodo talks about vulnerability. There's a sense of like nakedness of vulnerability that enters into the sequence of the tarot. He makes much of the numerology. He's interested in the fact this is number 17 and therefore resonates with number seven, which is the chariot. Both, he says, have to do with a manifesting of will or a manifesting of a human will. But whereas the chariot is, it's about like, it's a very masculine project of building something and, and asserting it, self-assertion, self-making and self-assertion that the figure of the star is the other side of that is like a kind of gentle, natural, ladies of the canyon kind of vulnerability. Yeah, I like that. I also like the idea that the nakedness of these figures and the, the kind of late, the last cards of the major arcana are indicative of a kind of submission to another will. There's something about clothes that they assert a kind of boundary between yourself and the world. 
And they also affirm a kind of identity, obviously. Not just modern fashion, but, you know, we can go back in time. There was a time where you could tell exactly what someone did with their lives by looking at how, what they wore. And the fact that the figures are naked, to me, is as opposed, let's say, for example, the figure on the star card, as opposed to the figure on the chariot card, who is fully dressed and not only dressed in clothing, but armored. dressed like armored and in a chariot, like fully yeah. encased in technology. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the star woman is naked, exposed to the universe. Mm-hmm. And this suggests an interesting relation with the chariot card, which does, I think, represent kind of an egoic, not necessarily negative, but an egoic will. The will to yeah. get something done in this world, to put all of your energies towards the accomplishment of a specific goal. The star is more about how one might submit to a will that is just as willful, just as will-like, just as intentional and conscious as your own will, but it is not your own will. And it's not the will of some other. It's this cosmic will. And mm. this is one of the great themes of, the, of our Known's Friend chapter on the stars. I mean, he starts off his chapter with a couple of epigraphs, the second of which comes from Kant's Critique of Practical Reason. And it goes, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. At one point in that chapter, an own friend writes that the difference between a magic spell and a miracle is that whereas a magic spell is very chariot-like, it's the imposition of one's will upon the world in such a way that a particular willed outcome takes place, a miracle is the achievement of something outside of any parameter where I can exert my will. I give my will to something higher, and yet the result, although it negates my capacity to bring things into being in the sense that it, it transcends my will, it is not my will that made it happen, it nevertheless affirms my moral sense of what should be. So a miracle is an acausal coincidence that affirms the reality of our moral instinct about how things should be. So it's like the star might be a symbol of the way that the universe, despite its ambiguous, strange, sometimes monstrous nature, nevertheless somehow concocts a reality that we can affirm as good. The nakedness of the woman might symbolize one's decision to trust in that, to trust in the, the universe, the universe's fundamental and certainly not obvious goodness on some level. Hmm. Thinking about the chariot and its egoic, not necessarily in a bad way, but its egoic project of self-creation and self-assertion, uh, which we would associate with magic and the power of magic in our known friends' terms, as opposed to the power of a miracle. Sacred um, magic or miracle, yeah. Sacred magic, yeah, yeah. yeah. One thing about the chariot is it's a principle of action. And our known friend might say it is a spirit of yes or no. That and this is, And there's a very interesting passage in our known friend's chapter on the star. Let me just hunt it up. Yeah, this is over on page 470. This is after our known friend has been thinking about the two liquids that 
Our Lady of the Canyon is pouring out. And he uses some quotes from Paul Verlaine and Victor Hugo to come up with this idea of two waters. One, which is sort of like the, the muddy snake. That, like It's like the Seine River, the muddy snake that runs through Paris. Still, Seine, your crawling journey do you make, curving through Paris like some aged snake, a muddy snake, and all your ports are fed with loads of wood, of coal, and of the dead. Oh, that's Paul Verlaine. And our known friend says, the flow of continuity in heredity, tradition, and lastly evolution bears not only all that which is healthy, noble, holy, and divine of the past, but also all that which was infectious, vile, blasphemous, and diabolical. All the good stuff and the bad stuff, the capital W water and the lowercase w water, all is born pell-mell without never ending toward the future. And he says, both the mud of the serpent of old and a kind of godly fluid, as quotes from a Victor Hugo poem, indeed flow in the veins of the human race. And then he says, is this dualism then? Do the serpent's venom and the tears of the virgin therefore flow together eternally in the flow of life? Yes and no, the one as resolutely as the other. Yes for the present, which is action and will. No for the future, which is the star of the sea of understanding and hope. And this is maybe a little bit difficult to understand, but he's trying to make a distinction. He goes on to say that Buddhists understand this, Zoroastrians understand this, and this is all very true. There's a sense in which, okay, I'm going to try and link it back to the chariot, which is where I started. The chariot to me has always been a card of the arousing of the Bodhi mind. This is a concept that I've mentioned elsewhere in this show, that when you start practice, if you're a, a Buddhist, there has to be some moment that you decide to start practicing. And that is the arousing of the Bodhi mind. And that is the awareness that there is something wrong yeah. with the world as it is, that you can do better, that we could all do better, and that there is a path that we could take that will lead us away from what we don't like. The muddy snake, the filthy water of the sin, the water of our humanity, which is just the base shittiness of you know, human beings generally. I hardly even need to like go into detail about what that might symbolize, right? You become aware that you're in muddy water. I mean, that's a fucking fundamental symbol of Buddhism, right? Yeah, the lotus. The lotus is coming. The, the, yeah. The, yeah, the flower that grows in the muddy water. We want to become the lotus, but we're in the muddy water, right? So when you arouse the Bodhi mind, you get the idea that everything is kind of screwed up in some way that I need to practice, I need to get right. Then you are making a kind of a dualistic distinction between the good stuff and the bad stuff. And get me out of here. I want to get to the good stuff. And that's the yes. That's the answer of action and will. That is the answer of the arousing of the Bodhi mind the awareness that there's something wrong and we need to do something about it. Yes to the answer of... Something it. else is possible, right? Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Actually, the yes is to the question, is the muddy water and the pure water, is it all just mixed up together? In other words, is our human condition that there's good stuff and bad stuff and it's just promiscuously mingled and right. we have to do some unmingling. We have to do something through action and will. The answer to that is yes, for the present, in this moment where I decide I'm going to 
pick up my socks. I'm going to start walking this path. The Bodhi mind has been well and truly aroused, right? right? But the problem is, and this is a thing that they will tell you in Buddhism, is that the arousing of the Bodhi mind is itself kind of delusion. Because you're making this dualistic distinction that on the level of absolute reality simply doesn't hold. However, you don't get to absolute reality without the present, without the action of will, the decision to practice right now. And so the answer no, is the answer from the absolute is always the answer of the future. But future conceived in our known friends peculiar way, as a star, as a fixed star of hope guiding us. The star is itself the point of view from which all of these dualities and oppositions are resolved. But that's not actually the world that we're living in. The world we're living in, it's all mixed up and we're walking it and we have no choice but to walk that path. But the star is always there and it's always visible and we can always walk towards it. That's the future. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>